Tomorrow is the last full day of the retreat. And then uh, we have Sunday morning and then we, we leave. And uh, many people have expressed lot of gratitude and a sense of blessings of having the opportunity of being here and practicing in this environment. There's a lot of support here. The environment is conducive. There's care and kindness and a structure that's set up that's conducive for inquiry and investigation. There's a whole team of people who are here to support waking up, making loving, delicious food, or seeing that the rotas are pinned up, making sure that the lawns are mowed beforehand. Nick coming and offering yoga from London. There's an enormous amount of generosity that goes into a retreat situation like this. So it's natural that there's a sense of appreciation for the conducive environment and also natural that questions arise of how to to bring this into one's life and one's um, context at home. Today in the in the Sutta reading, reading about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, there's quite an extensive list of things to bear in mind. But I think with regard to the reading this afternoon, that's one occasion when it actually is helpful to consider that the the Sutta was given primarily for monastics. And so the, the way the Eightfold Path was delineated was bearing in mind that the audience were monastics. And so if one were speaking to a, a group of people who were not monastics, the emphasis is likely to have been different. And so um, I thought this evening to talk a little bit about the Eightfold Path in terms of of ways that might be worthwhile considering for people who are not living in a monastic environment, which are most of the people who are here. So we know that the Eightfold Path consists of right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. But what does right mean? Right as opposed to wrong. Right as opposed to what's conducive for awakening. Right as a 
as a way of bringing forward attitudes and values and effort that are supportive in one's endeavor. So in the context of considering for a group of people who are non-monastic, what's useful contemplation with regard to right view? And when I step back a little bit and look at things in a, in a broad way, and I look at things in terms of, you know, as a basic, as a basic human being, what are the kinds of things that we needs to, to, to remember, to uh, keep in mind? And so independent of one's religious affiliation and, and independent of one's specific aspiration, you know, as, a, as a basic human being, what's helpful to keep in mind is our relationship with ourself, our relationship with our family, with our community and our spiritual community and the, the land, the earth that supports us, that we cohabit upon. Because we can see that independent of our religion or our aspiration, if we don't have a, a basic, wholesome relationship with ourselves. There's no possible way there's going to be any measure of peace or happiness or contentment. And we can also see that if our whole world view is just surrounded and involved and obsessed with ourself, then we also can have no possible measure of peace or contentment or happiness because we don't exist as independent lumps as we imagine ourselves or experience ourselves to be. And so relationship with our family is also important when it's not attended to. There's suffering when there's profound unresolved issues. It's painful. So an individual exists within a family and a family exists within a community and a community can have a connection to a spiritual community. And all of these things are supported by the earth that we live upon, in, around. And so the principles of non-harming that extend to oneself also need to flow through these other systems. So one aspect of right view is, is understanding how we place ourselves in relationship to the whole. In the course of looking at right view, it's helpful to have a sense that the things we do have an effect. And what we do, the effect of it is also more strongly influenced by our motivation than by the thing itself. And so when we begin to see the relationship of cause and effect in this way, then it's important 
as we live our lives that we have a way of being able to check what our motivation is, to discern what our motivation is. As our motivation is more based on kindness and generosity and non-harming, then generally speaking, the results will be more skillful. And when our motivation is based on a lack of kindness and a lack of generosity and enacting ill will, then generally speaking, the results will be more unskillful. So understanding the relationship of cause and effect and being able to see and discern one's motivation is part of this whole kind of picture of right view. But also looking at right view, one also needs to be able to begin to discern or start investigating what kind of values do we want to live by? You know, there's an awful lot in this world that we do which is urgent but completely not important. There's an awful lot that we do that's not urgent and completely not important. And so then when we begin to see the things that are not urgent but important or urgent and important and finding ways to make time for them, to incorporate them, to include them, then our value system is then supported by our actions and the way we're spending our time. And that's useful. So the view is a, an overview that, that places ourself in right relationship with ourselves and our family, with our community, with the spiritual community, with the land, the universe, and, and has the ability to examine some core principles and values associated with that. In terms of right thought, the thought of non-harming, the thoughts of simplification and the thoughts of kindness are useful ones to consider. You know, to establish non-harming as a priority in one's life. To think that way. To begin to look and see how much of the complexity that we live in is useful, how much of it is necessary, are there ways that we can make it simpler? Do we need to have so many things and all these things that need to be taken care of? You know, what, what do we really need? And so in this there, it's useful to just occasionally and periodically take stock of one's lifestyle. 
and see whether it's in alignment with one's values. And if it isn't, look and see if there are small ways or maybe slightly larger ways that one can begin to simplify so that one's lifestyle and one's values are in alignment. Non-harming is not enacting things which are destructive. It's a refraining from certain kinds of behavior. Kindness and compassion is the ability to empathetically connect with suffering oneself and another. And it allows a positive response. It's very helpful to consider that. Establishing non-harming and compassion as ways to contemplate, to think as thoughts of value to uphold. Now, one of the things that we can see living in a community, and I would imagine also is true in a family, one of the things which conduces to harmony, to respect, and also one of the things which is the easiest to cause disharmony and and undermine the safety and the trust of the fabric of the community has to do with the way we're using speech. And so looking at speech in this way, in terms of whether it is supportive of trust and safety or whether it undermines it, learning how to process difficulties in a way which is resolving of them rather than fracturing or or damaging the fabric of trust which is needed to hold together. You know, working with speech, developing skills and tools around how to do this, being careful how one speaks openly and in privately about each other. Useful endeavor to consider. So right action involves non-harming. And so again, this comes up as not only a thought, but also a commitment to action. Everyone's not engaged in an activity which is harmful. Right action includes right relationship with sexuality. And so I would encourage not only there to be a clear understanding of what appropriate sexual relationships are in terms of when the relationship has sufficient friendship and commitment and when it's not harming somebody else or yourself, when there's not another partner that's involved that's likely to be distressed, 
when the person is of age or has enough uh, stability to make clear decisions. It's not only on the level of choosing clear partners and choosing appropriate situations and contexts based in friendship and kindness and respect. But also the encouragement with this is to begin to look at this whole subject, bring it into mind, allow it to be something that's included in one's practice, understood, seeing how it operates. And this, of course, would be true for people who are on the five precepts or who are celibate. Actually, there's a conscious investigation of this whole life force energy and how it operates and affects the mind and body process and how it can be used in one's spiritual practice to very powerful advantage. So there's an embracing of, a welcoming of this whole aspect of ourselves. And with regard to right action, the next level is right speech. So not only is it important that one have values about correct speech, one begins to actually see what one is saying and the results that it's having. So with regard to right livelihood, that was mentioned today was is that wrong livelihood classically consists in deliberately breaking any of the precepts, engaging in um, trade of weapons or poison, alcohol, engaging in raising animals for slaughter or in in engaging in um, trafficking people or sexuality of some kind. But aside from these specific um, items which have been listed as wrong livelihood, it's important to begin to look and see the values that one is working with in one's job and whether they are in line with one's own values. So there are innumerable livelihoods which are not considered wrong livelihood by the classic definition, which which are deeply against one's own values. And so there needs to be a, a kind of honest appraisal of where you're at and whether what you're doing is actually something you can manage in a way which is not detrimental to your value system and to your aspiration. Now it is possible to have an idea or, or to have an aspiration, even if this one is in a situation where there's a lot of greed or a lot of competitiveness and the motivation is around money, around profit, to be as kind and as compassionate and as respectful as one can manage to be in relating to whoever one needs to relate to. And so one can make a determination of being a bodhisattva within a you know, 
a, a chaos zone or a war zone, you know. And I was speaking to one uh, friend who was a businessman. He was a very uh, successful businessman. And he felt guilty because he felt that having understood the teachings, he should be willing to relinquish his business endeavors for something that was more in line with his spiritual aspirations. But when I talked to him about the way he actually related to people and the way he did business, even though he was a successful businessman, he was careful in his relationships to be kind, to be fair, to be generous, to be gentle. And so in his own world, he was creating an example of a way of being uh, a good person in an environment that's not common for good people to be or where the qualities of greed can flourish independent of whether people are wanting to be good people or not. In terms of right effort, I think this is a big subject. And I've been talking a little bit during the course of this retreat about the importance of seeing how we are human beings that have human needs. And some of our human needs include affection and friendship and support and And so in a a right effort, it would be important to build community, to build kinship links, to build support systems with other like-minded people, to find and develop strategies of staying in contact, find and develop ways of discussing issues that are relevant, find ways of mirroring each other's goodness. And so how one develops that and what one does is a creative endeavor that each person needs to figure out for themselves and it depends a little bit on where you're located in relationship to others and what kind of centers are near you. But developing kinship ties, support system, friendship networks is an important effort. Having a place of practice in one's own house, making sure that there's a space, maybe a corner, or that's just devoted to practice, that's not filled with things to do and stuff, that's conducive for the mind settling. You know, if devotion is something that moves you, finding ways to cultivate that. Finding resources that help deal with the various different issues that need specific support other than just solitude and silence on a meditation cushion. Living in a city, working full-time, The amount of impact that is impinging is enormous. Learning how to let go 
developing ways of relaxing, of staying grounded, walking in a park, making flower pots, digging in the earth, having an allotment, having pets. You know, all these things help us stay grounded. All of these things help us earth. And in the middle of the kind of confusion of life, learning how not to take things too seriously. I remember in the first few years of meditation, you know, the retreats were very powerful and intense and I found them worthwhile and insightful. But when I left the retreats, I was swamped by tides and avalanches of emotions. And I remember somebody came to me who had been a long-time meditator. And I I knew him from a meditation retreat. And he just said to me, you know, it's good not to take these things too seriously. And I remember looking at him like, yeah, but how? (laughs) You know, how do you actually do it? So it's very helpful when we can learn to laugh at ourselves, when we can learn to lighten up, to take things a little bit less seriously, to make it a little bit easier. One of the things that we can notice when our efforts have borne fruit is that we stop seeking perfection, either in ourselves or in the environment around us. We notice there is more kindness in the way we relate to ourselves and the way we relate to others. There's more immediacy of seeing that the practice is just what's arising in the present moment and how one is responding to it rather than striving to have certain mind states or special experiences or conditions which are ideal. The sense of the sacred is integrated both in terms of one's own personal life and in terms of one's way of relating. There's a flexibility of being able to see that there isn't only one way of doing things. And along with that, there's a a growing capacity to embrace opposites. So last night, the talk was about paradox and the opposing things that can be embraced within the practice. Another element which is apparent when one's efforts are bearing results is is that spiritual practice can be very ordinary. It doesn't have to be something special at all. And another element, I think, which is an indication of, of one's efforts bearing fruit is that there can be more understanding of effort and effortlessness, of when is it really very appropriate just to stop doing, trying, getting, making it better, fixing it, and just resting, resting in the present moment.
So with right concentration, right mindfulness, you know, for many people it's a perennial problem of confusing the two. That we think right mindfulness is when our mind is very concentrated and sharp and focused. But we are always able, no matter what situation we're in, to ask the question, well, what's happening now? To cultivate an awareness of what is rather than an awareness of what should be. And so with concentration, we can see there is a value in having the mind settle. It's not an absolute truth, but relatively speaking, it is useful. There are things which are sometimes more clear when it's more settled. And so making opportunities where one can learn to relax and put the world down and stop is useful. Learning how to settle, even if the settledness is is not as refined as it is on a retreat context. Having places in one's life that allow reflection or stopping. You know, sometimes people can determine the door handles. You know, every time you touch a door handle, just to stop and recollect you're going through a door. Sometimes people recollect with using the toothbrush, you know, when you brush your teeth in the morning, that that's the time to stop and to be really still. You know, sometimes people set their alarm to go off every hour. And when it's like just the mindfulness bell of, well, what's happening now? Where am I? What do I need? You know, so one can develop skillful strategies that are useful in one's daily life that support stopping and stilling and asking, inquiring, what's happening right now and how am I relating to it? Take a breath or two, just get a feeling for one's body, get a sense of, well, what's going on? You know, Confusion and overwhelm is not something outside of the practice. It's a valid object of meditation. It doesn't have to be clear and bright, pristine. And so when we begin to recognize that, begin to have a sense that the refuge of awareness, the sound of silence, even the great compassion belly is big enough to hold it all. You know, there's nothing that is outside of what's possible to know. We stop this kind of hankering for these special refined states, special experiences. I think I will tell a, a, a couple stories and then maybe stop and open it up if anyone has any questions. But before I, I uh, tell these two stories, I, I just want to uh, share with you a poem that I wrote. I was, I was staying in a place, sharing a bathroom with four men. And they hadn't figured out a way to keep the bathroom clean. And I didn't find that a terribly satisfactory arrangement. But I wasn't interested in 
being the one who did all of the cleaning. So I wanted to find a way to share the cleaning. But when I asked the property manager if I could talk to the others about it and ask them if they'd be happy to help, he said, no, I was not allowed to do that. And his reasoning was, what did he say? He said, they won't help and so you can't ask. And the logic was beyond me. (laughs) But nevertheless, I did not give up. I was not easily dissuaded. So I asked, am I allowed to inspire them to clean? And he said, yes, I was allowed to inspire them to clean, but I was not allowed to ask them to clean. So it took me three days, two hours each day to clean the bathroom to an acceptable standard. And then I put a rota up. And then I put a poem up on the door. And the poem was, The mind is luminous, radiant, and undefiled. There dust does not settle. In the land of this and that, here and there, there is a path to cultivate. To realize the one, cultivate the other. To live with kindness, care and respect is both path and goal. And it worked. So um, when I was in Australia, I had occasion to meet many people who I found inspiring. And one person who I found inspiring was a man by the name of Max. And um, Max had been a, a computer engineer, software engineer, and had been involved with building a boat. It was a model boat that they were building for the Olympics in the year 2000. And it was a, um, a solar-powered motorboat that was computer interfaced so that the solar panels would change to be in the direction of the sun. Okay, you got it? So Max was the the computer wizard that did the software engineering. And when it came time for building it, he was the site manager overseeing the mechanics of building it. And when it came time for assembling it, he was the (laughs) assembly manager putting it together, you know. So he was very busy for a year and a half or so before the whole thing was put together. But he was also very committed to practice. He had a a very deep devotion of practice, had a lot of faith. And and so he he was working very hard, um, but he had in mind to do this 10-day monastic retreat at the Nantian Temple, which is a Mahayana temple south of Sydney. And uh, the deadlines, he met the deadlines, and he went on the retreat. And in this monastic retreat, they, they, take, uh, they take precepts. So he became a monk for 10 days. So we come on retreat for 10 days, he became a monk for 10 days. 
He took his vows, he took robes, he shaved his head. And then the deal was that at the end of the ten days, you hand back the robes, you hand back some of your vows, and uh, and you return to lay life. (laughs) (laughs) If you want, you get your hair back. (laughs) So he did this. And he was overjoyed because one of the things that happened on this retreat in the Mahayana temple was they take bodhisattva vows, which is the, which is the aspiration to realize peace for the benefit of all beings. And for him, it was the single most important moment of his life because he realized that he was generating uh, an intention that was not only going to serve him in this lifetime, but it would serve him in future lifetimes as well. So for him, in that context, it was meaningful. It meant a lot to him. So he was delighted to be able to do this retreat. And his wife, Daphne, came at the end of the retreat, picked him up without his hair, without his robes, some of his precepts. And they were on their way home, and they needed to stop at the washroom. He went to the washroom, and there was blood, filled the toilet with blood. So they went to the hospital, and they had some tests, and it turned out he had renal cancer cancer of the kidneys and it had spread and the doctors gave him three weeks to live so he thought to himself I've got three weeks to live what's important what's really important not a little bit important but what's really important I've got three weeks to live and it's an interesting question you know if you've got three weeks to live what's important You know, what do you really value? And so he thought that the most important thing that he valued was to express to his family and his friends how much he loved them. And then he thought that the single most important thing in enabling him to be able to do that is if he loved himself. And somehow, because of the situation and his own personal um, spiritual power, the things that blocked his capacity to love himself fell away. And he was resting in love. When I met him, he was luminous. Absolutely luminous. The cancer had spread everywhere. It was in his spine, it was in his heart, it was in his organs, it was everywhere. And he was absolutely luminous. And he talked about that whole period of time, you know, saying that for him it was the greatest blessing of his life. Because rather than him experiencing the tragedy of his impending death, what he was aware of was the peace and the joy and the contentment and the ease and the well-being of resting in love. And even though his sadness was for his family and them watching his body deteriorate, he knew he was dying 
but on some level he knew he wasn't going anywhere. So Max leaves us with a very interesting question, or questions. What is really important in our lives? What do we really value? And what is keeping us from loving ourselves? Completely. The other story I'd like to tell is um, a true story. I don't remember where I first heard it, but it moved me very much. It still does. Most of the time I cry when I tell it, so we'll see what happens this evening. But there was a man who was um, talking to an assembly of, of parents. He had a disabled boy, and it was an assembly of parents who all had disabled children. And he was saying to the parents, this whole group of parents, that when he thought about his son, he sometimes did not know where he fit into the cosmic order of the universe. Now, can you imagine a parent saying that about their son in front of other parents who have disabled children? And then he went on to tell a story. He was saying that he was walking with his son in a park and there were some boys playing baseball. And the son asked his dad, Dad, you know, I want to play. So what's dad going to do? So he thought, well, the best or the least or the, that he could do was to go up to the, to the boys and ask if his son could play. So he did. And you know what children are like. How long does it take somebody to figure out that somebody isn't quite right? Half a second? A tenth of a second? A tenth of a nanosecond? So he asked the, um, the pitcher the question, can my, can my son play ball with the boys on the field here? And the pitcher was in a dilemma because he was put in a position of having to make a decision that was going to affect everybody on the field and everyone on the team. So he hesitated for a while and then decided, yeah, he can play. So this little fellow was out in the field with a, when a baseball met on his hand, running back and forth, grinning from ear to ear. He was one of the boys and he was playing ball and he was absolutely delighted, you know. The fact that he didn't understand the rules or he couldn't catch the ball or he wasn't even sure what was happening was neither here nor there. He was delighted to be playing ball with one of, with the boys. So, you know, they did various different innings and they had, you know, the, the score. And it turned out that the, the bases were loaded, the, the game was tied, it was the last inning and the last person up to bat and it was this little fellow. Now, how they all worked out that he should come up to bat, I don't know how that was, but he was up to bat. And so, you know, he's, everything's a challenge. Holding the bat is a challenge. I mean, everything is a challenge. And so the pitcher moved in close to him and, and threw the ball right at the bat. 
and you know he missed but well that's no surprise it was quite quite a lot that he was just managing to hold the bat so then the pitcher moved in closer still and and threw the ball quite gently and quite directly just at the bat and it connected and the ball ran a couple inches forward and the pitcher ran to grab the ball it turned around and heaved it into left field and everybody who was sitting down on his team said drop the bat drop the bat and run go run run that way go that way run that way there's first base run run so you know he managed to drop the bat and figured out kind of which direction to go and so he was heading to first base and so out in the left field they catch the ball and they turn around and they heave it out into right field So now his teammates are hollering at him and chasing him around the field and the other teammates are joining in and running and chasing him around the field and the two teams both sides are chasing this fellow from one base to the next base around the field and they're throwing the ball around until he runs all the way home and it was a grand slam and he won the game Now what's extraordinary about this story is is that not only did he win the game but everyone won the game his parents won the game the people on both sides won the game the parents in the audience won the game because the father said to everyone that when i think of people's capacity to respond to my son then i understand the place in the universe that he has these are a bunch of kids and in an instant the rules of the game changed and in an instant it changed from a game being us against them to a game where everyone won sometimes it's important for us to ask ourselves what game are we playing and who's winning and is this the game we want to be playing who has made up the rules so i offer this for reflection this evening Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.